knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last time we were together, we started our study through the book of Exodus. We looked at some of the key statistics. Uh, we looked at some background information. We looked at our outline. Uh, we also looked at chapter 1. And the, chapter 1 focused on the slavery of Israel and Egypt. And as we ended Genesis, there were 70 people who went uh, from Canaan to Egypt. And as we start Exodus, there's been a couple hundred years that have transpired from the end of Genesis to the start of Exodus. And now we have these 70 people who have grown uh, dramatically and they have filled that portion of Egypt that they were in. And uh, because they've been multiplying so much, because God has been blessing them, because God is fulfilling what He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that He would make them a great nation... You know, obviously the, the Jews were blessed by this. They were blessed by God fulfilling their promise. But the Egyptians, they weren't so happy about the um, quick multiplication of the Israelites. And they were fearful. And the things that they were fearful of was if some other nation were to invade Egypt because there were so many fighting men among the Israelites, if they were to turn on the Egyptians then the Egyptians would have some big problems. And so the Pharaoh decides, you know what, we're going to see this growth. Uh, and what we'll do is I'm just going to make everybody slaves, and they're going to work all day, and they're going to build all these things, and then they're not going to reproduce like they are now. And he thinks this is going to solve all our problems. You know, men who are working and women who are working all day, that's going to stop this multiplication. And so he does that. And God continues to bless, and they actually multiply even more as slaves than they did before they were slaves. And so Pharaoh's frustrated. Plan one didn't work, so he goes to plan two or plan B, and he says, you know what, now I'm going to get real serious. Comes to all the midwives and says, whenever there's a baby boy born to the Israelites, I want you to kill him. And that will take care of our problem. There'll be no more boys born, then the army won't grow, and our future will be secure. But we're told the midwives, they fear God more than Pharaoh. They don't obey Pharaoh. And so God blesses them for their obedience to him. And so Pharaoh's first two plans haven't worked out to stop the multiplication of the Israelites. And so he comes up with a third plan, even more severe. Midwives did not obey. He gives a command to every Egyptian. If you know of a baby boy that is born to Hebrews, then you must kill them. That is a new law of the land, and that is where we end chapter 1 and come into chapter 2, where we see the next section we're going to look at, which is the birth of Moses and his first 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. So in this section, we're going to see how God protects and how God provides for Moses, which hopefully will encourage us to see how God protects and provides for us as well. We're also going to see some great examples in Moses' parents and some great examples in Moses himself when he's an adult. We're also going to see 
quite a bad example of Moses as an adult as well. But hopefully from all of this, we can learn some things about God and learn some things about the examples that we see from Moses and his parents. So let's start Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So Moses is the author of this book, and he starts chapter 2 giving us a little bit of insight to his parents, but he doesn't say very much. He tells us, a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife of the daughter of Levi. So we don't have many details except that his dad was from the tribe of Levi, and his mom was from the tribe of Levi, and they got married. But the Bible in other portions gives us a little more details about Moses' parents, which I'd like to highlight for you. Exodus 6 verse 20 says, Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So here we see what Moses' parents' names were. His father's name was Amram. His mom's name was Jochebed. And Moses is not their first child. Actually, he is their third child. The firstborn child is Miriam. The secondborn is Aaron. Moses is the baby. Now, we don't know how much older Miriam is than Moses, but we do know from the story we're about to look at tonight that she's old enough to follow him as he's in a basket, so she's probably five, six years older than him. But we do know how much older Aaron is. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, we're told, And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. So Aaron's three years older, uh, so if they follow that pattern, then Miriam would be six years or five years or you know somewhere in that range older than Moses. And so after Moses gives birth, or Jochebed gives birth, sorry, to Moses, we're told in verse 2 that when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, this Hebrew word translated beautiful, I know some of your other translations don't have beautiful. It's not the best translation. Actually, it's not a very good translation at all. It means something that is good and agreeable. So when you first read this, it's not saying, you know what, Jochebed, she looked at uh, her son and he was beautiful, and so she, you know, hides him, but if he was ugly, she wouldn't have hid him. It's not talking about, you know, his looks in that perspective. Um, this is speaking of good, pleasant, and agreeable child. Now, something I find interesting is you look through this Hebrew word and where it's used in Scripture, and the majority of times that you see it, it's always something that is good and agreeable in the sight of God. There's a few instances where it's in the sight of men, but the majority that it's used is in the sight of God. And the very first time it's used is in Genesis chapter 1, we see it used over and over again. After a day of creation, God ends the day and says, it was good. The exact same word that we see here translated beautiful, it was good, it was good, it was good in whose sight? It was good in the sight of God. And that is how we most often see the used in the context of Scripture. And the reason I bring that up is because most commentators believe that this is how it's being used here as well, that Moses' parents not just saw that, oh, he was a good kid, well, how would you know that when he's born? But no, more specifically, that he was good in the sight of God, that God had something special for Moses. Bob Deppenfall says this would be a better translation of this verse, that when she saw that he was a child, 
that God had a special purpose for, she hid him three months. And so it seems that this Hebrew word is not just saying that he was good, but there's a recognition that in the sight of God, there's something special about this baby, something that the Lord wants to do. Now, this actually fits with both Jewish tradition and other verses that we see in Scripture. The Jewish historian Josephus writes, this is a Jewish tradition, that Moses' father Amram had a vision of Moses being used by God to deliver the nation of Israel, and that's how his parents knew that he was going to be a special baby. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about this vision. This is Jewish tradition, but the Bible does say some other things that leads to the fact that this could very well have been something that did occur. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, we're told, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Now notice the, the emphasis here, not just Moses was born, but we see here in Acts that he's well-pleasing to whom? Not just his parents, but to God. There was something special about Moses that was well-pleasing to God when he was a baby because God had a special plan and purpose for his life. The Bible also tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So here we're told that by faith, Moses' parents, they hide him for these first three months of his life. And there are two reasons for why we're told they did this. First, because they saw he was a beautiful child. Once again, we have that word translated not very well. Uh, the NIV translates it, um, no ordinary child, which would be more accurate to the Greek speaking of he was special. There was something special about this child that God was going to do something with. And the second reason they did it is because they were not afraid of the king Pharaoh's command. Now remember in chapter 1, he told the midwives, kill all the baby boys. But they had greater fear of God than they did of Pharaoh, and so they said, no, we're not going to do that. And here we see the same thing with Moses' parents. Hey, we are going to hide and disobey the king's command. Why? Because we're going to obey God's command. We have a greater fear of God than we do of this king. David Guzik said this about Moses' parents. The baby Moses opened his eyes to an unfriendly world. He was born in a powerful nation, but was a, fo a foreign, oppressed race during a time when all babies such as himself were under a royal death sentence. Nevertheless, Moses had something special in his favor. He was the child of believing parents. You know, if you grew up in a home with parents who were believers in Jesus Christ, you've been blessed. You know, there's so many people who don't have that privilege, so many people who grow up in homes where their parents are atheists or their parents believe in some other religious belief system. They're not followers of Jesus. And there's just a special blessing to have parents that actually have faith in Jesus and follow Jesus and encourage you to do the same. I'm sure all of us can look at our parents and say, yeah, our parents had a lot of issues and did things that, you know, weren't the best. And I look at my parents and I think, yeah, they had problems and failures and faults as I do as well as a parent. But the thing that my parents did well was first, they had their own personal relationship with Jesus. And second, they really pushed that on us in a good way of trying to help us gain that relationship as well and set that example for us. And really, that's the most important thing we can pass on to our kids. I mean, if you think of all the things that you can give to your children, all the examples that you can have, what would be better than a relationship with 
Jesus. And, you know, a lot of parents, they're, they're focused on what kind of, you know, career their kids are going to have. And, you know, some parents are so desperate for their kids to be doctors or to be lawyers or to be some kind of career that they view as like, man, this is so important. And there's nothing wrong with wanting your child to be in a great career. But there is something wrong when that takes precedence over a relationship with Jesus, that you'd rather them be a doctor than a follower of Christ, that you'd rather them be a lawyer than a follower of Christ. You know, I look at my girls and I think, you know what, as long as they're following Jesus, I don't really care what career they choose in their life. I'd much rather have them work in minimum wage for the rest of their life, you know, in some kind of fast food following Jesus than being a doctor who doesn't. Uh, and so I think this is the most important thing that we can pass on to our children. Moses was blessed to have parents who really trusted Jesus, followed Jesus, and um, notice what they do here. For three months, they hide him. Notice what verse 3 says. But when she could no longer hide him, she took out an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbanks. Any of you who have had children, you realize even as a baby, it would be hard to conceal a baby, but the older they get and the more they move and the louder they are, the more difficult it's going to be to hide the fact that you have a child in your home. And so now Moses is three months old and they got to the point where we can't hide him anymore. You know, people are going to know that he is here and there is a royal decree that says kill every single boy. And so now they're at a point where like we can't hide him. Someone's going to find him out. And they're going to be, he's going to be thrown in the river and drowned by Pharaoh's orders. And so his mother does something. We're told she made an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch. Well, here's a picture of bulrushes down by the Nile River in our day today. It would have been similar back in that day. It was very common, grew right on the water, grows on a lot of river banks here in the States as well. Uh, it would have been real easy for Moses' mother to get a hold of them. But something else significant, as you see this next picture, this was something that they used to build little boats out of as well. And so it wouldn't have been like, oh, this random thought of she would have seen, hey, people are building boats with this material, so why don't I just build a small one for my son? And here, finally, is a picture from the British Museum of a basket made with bulrushes, asphalt, and pitch. And so this is probably very close to what this basket would have looked like, this little mini boat or ark uh, that she put her son in. And so after making this boat for Moses, she places him in it, places it in the water by the reeds at the riverbank. Now, most of us are familiar with where the story's headed, what God's going to do to protect Moses. And so sometimes maybe we don't stop and pause and think of how difficult this must have been for his mother. I mean, try to put yourself in that position where you're the mom and this is your baby and you're placing your baby in this, you know, little ark or this little basket that you've made that floats and you're literally just going to leave your child and trust the Lord that he's going to protect him. I mean, that would be such a hard thing to do, such a hard thing to, to just give up and trust, Lord, I trust you with my son, I trust you to take care of him, and I'm just going to let him go down this river where I no longer have control over what happens to him. You know, we see a great example here of not only the mom, but I'm sure Amram as well, he's part of this, that they're willing to trust the Lord with Moses. And trusting God with what we value most 
is definitely not easy. You know, for some, we value ourselves the most, so trusting God with our own life is difficult. When you become a parent, often it's your children that now the value grows, and you know, to trust God with them can be hard, or it's a spouse or whoever. But, you know, trusting God with what we greatly value, for many of us, that's a struggle. And as parents, something we need to do here with our kids is just, Lord, I give them to you. I trust with you, especially as kids are getting older and they're about to move out of the house. And, you know, I know, you know, a lot of parents, they struggle with just kind of letting go and trusting the Lord to take care of their kids. And we see a great example in Amram and Jochebed. They're willing to do this. They're willing to trust God with something that is so valuable and precious to them. And verse 4 tells us, And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So after mom puts Moses in the basket, puts it near the reeds, Miriam, she stays there. And she's just watching, you know, what's going to happen? You know, where is he going to go? Where is the river going to take him? You know, what's going to be the end for my little brother? Well, we're going to see what happens to him in verses 5 and 6. It says this, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, And her maidens walked alongside the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children's. There are a couple things here I want you to note about God, about what God does here for Moses and for his family. And the first thing is the divine orchestration of this meeting between little baby Moses in his basket and Pharaoh's daughter there on the river. You know, on the banks of the river, Moses could have come across all sorts of things that would have been bad. Crocodiles were worshipped there because there was a lot of them there. Crocodile finds Moses, he's dead. Uh, you know what? But every Egyptian is under a decree that says, you find a Hebrew baby boy, kill him. So there was plenty of people who could have been down by the river, who could have seen this basket, who could have opened it up, and then they could have just drowned him because they were under royal command to do so. So there were a lot of things that could have happened where Moses' life could have come to an end, but yet the basket goes to a very specific place where he encounters a very specific person, and this isn't a coincidence. Now, something else I find interesting as I read through history, we see that Pharaoh's daughter is down by the river bathing, but actually royalty had their own bathing places in the palace. Most of the people went down to the river to bathe, so she didn't have to go down there. She just chose this day, hey, I'm going to come with my maids, and instead of bathing in the palace, we're going to bathe down by the river, And once again, this is not coincidental that she is there and that this is happening and that Moses is coming right next to her all at this time. And so as she's down there bathing, she sees this little basket by the reeds. She has one of her maidservants go and get it. They bring the basket to her. She opens it up. And right when she opens it up, we're told that Moses starts to cry. And as it is with many people, when they see a baby cry, she's filled with compassion, but she also recognizes that this is a Hebrew child. This isn't an Egyptian child. And she would have known, as her dad's the one who made the decree, hey, all these little Hebrew boys, there's a decree that they all are supposed to be killed. But you know what? She's probably the only person who could get away with not following her dad's decree. The one that dad, the little girl, when she says, Daddy, I want to keep this 
let's not kill this one that could actually get away with it because this is her father's daughter. David Guzik said this about how God orchestrated this meeting. God had this beautifully planned for the deliverance of both Moses and eventually for the people of Israel. He skillfully guided the parents of Moses, the currents of the Nile, and the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to further his plan and purpose. And I just love this, how God is divinely orchestrating everything. He works through Moses' parents. I, I like this, the quote as well. I mean, even the currents of the Nile to, to bring that basket just to the right place so that Pharaoh's daughter would find it. And he works in her so they doesn't want to kill this baby. Instead, she wants to keep this baby as her own. And so God is definitely orchestrating things to protect baby Moses. And this is something that we see throughout the Bible. God as our protector. You know, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 121. I love it because it, it reveals that God is our helper, that God is our protector. And it's a short Psalm, and I just want to read it. Um, and I think it's kind of just self-explanatory in it, but I, I love it. It says this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. You know, when you're going through difficulty and hardship, we need to look up and realize we have the help of the Creator of heaven and earth, the One who's all-powerful, the One who's there to protect us. Now remember, Moses' sister Miriam, she's watching all this. She's going down the river, she's seeing the current take him, and all of a sudden she sees someone find him, and I'm sure there's part of her like, oh no, what's going to happen? And then... Pharaoh's daughter actually wants to keep baby Moses and she's there and she's watching this and notice how she responds when she sees that Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on Moses in verses 7-10. through 10. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So Miriam sees Pharaoh's daughter have compassion on Moses, and she, as a little girl, just comes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Hey, do you want me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him? Now, Pharaoh's daughter didn't have this baby, so she couldn't breastfeed the baby. So she's saying, hey, you know what? I can get one of these Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you. And Pharaoh's daughter thinks, hey, that's a great plan. And Miriam's thinking, yeah, I got an even better one. She goes home to mom and says, mom, hey, look what happened. Pharaoh's daughter has compassion and Moses needs someone to nurse him. I'm going to bring you back. And so mom comes back and Pharaoh's daughter says, would you please nurse this baby who now I am going to adopt as my own? And guess what? I'll pay you to do it. Now, most likely, Moses is going to be with his mom until he's weaned, uh, which at that time was between about two and four years of age. And so we just see such a wonderful blessing here 
Look at this. I mean, Jochebed and Amram, they finally decide, we're just going to trust the Lord with our child. And that same day, she places her baby in a basket, lets the basket go, having no clue of what's going to happen. Probably her mind filled with all sorts of things that could happen, trusting and hoping that God will just protect her baby. And in the same day, she's brought back to her child, and the child's given back to her probably for a couple of years so that she can nurse the baby and also even have time to you know share some uh, spiritual truths with it in its young age. But just what a blessing that God gives. Here, you put your trust in me, and now look how I bless you in this. Uh, and I think this is just a great encouragement for us as we you know sometimes struggle with placing our faith, placing our trust in the Lord, and just realizing when we do it, the Lord is so good to us and He blesses us when we place that trust in Him. And so after the time, we don't know the exact duration of it. He's getting older. He's probably three or four. She brings him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And at the official adoption is taking place because now he's now going to be living in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. And this is where he actually gets his name. Up to this point in time, he wasn't called Moses. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. And she names him it because we're told, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses actually means drawn. And so she calls him that because, hey, I, I found him in the water. I drew him out of the water, so I'm going to name you based on that. Uh, and so now Moses gets to live in the palace with Pharaoh's daughter. And so I want you to notice this with the divine plan of God. First, he protects Moses and blesses Moses' parents in the process of it all. But now he's also providing Look at this. Moses, you know, where the parents are like, well, we can't keep him quiet anymore. We can't keep him in our house. Well, God says, you know what? I got another house that I'll let him grow up in. He's going to grow up in the palace here in Egypt as Pharaoh's son or Pharaoh's daughter's son. You know, so God is not just our protector. The other thing that he is, is our provider. And I really love this because, you know, what I think it's interesting is I look at my own life and I talk with people when they struggle with trusting the Lord. Two of the biggest areas where we struggle with trust is with God's protection and God's provision. Those are those areas, and you see that. You know, the Lord might call us to something that's a little bit dangerous, or He wants us to proclaim His Word in a place where there's persecution. And there's a part of us that says, you know what, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I trust you to protect in the midst of what might happen to me if I do what you've called me to do. Or the Lord calls us to do something that we don't have the funds for, we don't have you know, what we need materially to actually accomplish it, and we struggle believing, Lord, can I trust you to provide what I need? And it's not always just you know, financial, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's physical, but, but do I trust that you will provide for me for this to happen? And oftentimes we don't. You know, we struggle with it. Lord, I don't know if I can do this because I don't think you're going to protect me. Or I don't know if I can do this because I don't think that you're going to provide for me. And, you know, I see this so often in mission trips. You know, you see both of these happen where, you know, you go to some places and, you know, maybe there's a big Muslim influence or there's something and you're just wondering, if I'm going over to Africa or I'm going to go over to the Middle East, you know, is the Lord going to protect me as he calls me to do this trip? And then you find the price tag of it. And you're thinking, you know, how am I going to afford several thousand dollars to do this? Is the Lord able to provide for me as well? It's just great to watch people go through that struggle and then just see at the end of it all how the Lord protected, how the Lord provided, how He was faithful to do what He is. He's a God who protects and a God who provides. And we see that here with Moses. 
So verse 10, we have Moses as a baby. And interesting, now we go to verse 11, and he's an adult. So we go from baby to adult, and we have no information here in Exodus of anything about his upbringing, his childhood, you know, his teenage years. He just is, he's an adult straight from a baby. And so I want us to look at a couple other verses that we see in scripture that give us some insights of Moses's upbringing since Exodus chooses not to add that in. In the book of Acts chapter 7 verses 21 and 22, we're told, But when Moses was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So here we're going to pick up right here where we have our story in Exodus. Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses as her son living in the palace. And notice the two things that we're told about Moses here uh, in his upbringing. First, we're told that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. So Moses grew up being trained. He grew up being taught in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And this is a significant thing because at that time, Egypt was one of the most advanced academic societies around. And so it would have been quite a to be, you know, educated, especially in the palace as Pharaoh's daughter's son. Um, so he would have most likely been instructed in all sorts of different things of history and grammar and writing and literature and geography and philosophy and science, possibly even music and art. Uh, he was very well educated in his upbringing. And the second thing we're told about Moses's upbringing is that he was mighty in words and deeds. Remember that in words as well, because we're going to find out later on he claims that he can't speak. But he's actually mighty in word and in deed. The historian Josephus tells us that Moses was an accomplished military leader and he was the one in charge when the Egyptians defeated the Ethiopians. And so he's grown up very educated, but he's also been given these great roles of leadership, leading armies, defeating different armies. He was someone who was mighty in deeds. And I think this is very interesting because you look at his life and from the world's perspective, man, Moses has got it all. He's living in the palace. He's a prince. He's got all this great education. He's mighty in words. He's mighty in deeds. He's done these wonderful things. I mean, what a life to have. I would never want to give up that life would be the mindset of the world. That's perfect. Just stay there. That's that's the kind of life we all strive for in the world's perspective. But you know what? The book of Hebrews tells us that Moses comes to a point in his life where he makes a very significant decision, one that the world would be shocked by. Like, what are you thinking? Why would you do this? And notice what we're told in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So in the eyes of the world, Moses has it all. He has it made. But then we're told by faith, when Moses became of age, we're going to find that this is transpiring right where we're about to get back. He's going to be 40 years old. He refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses makes a choice. He chooses to give up all this that he has. I mean, I'm living in the palace. I'm the prince. You know, I'm no longer going to be that guy anymore. I'm going to give that up. 
And the world will be thinking, what are you, crazy? Why would you give that up? What would ever make you want to give that up? Well, we're given two reasons why he made this choice. First, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This is crazy when you think about it. Here's Moses in the palace. He's got everything you would want. And what are the Israelites, his people? They're slaves. They're beaten. They're tortured. They're, they're miserable. They're serving all day long. I mean, who in their right mind wants to choose to leave the palace to go join this group? Well, Moses says, I'm willing to do that. I'd rather be with my people than what? Enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You know, Moses had a pretty good perspective, and it probably took him a while to really get it. But he started to understand sin in a way that most people miss, especially the people of the world. He understood that sin, the pleasures of sin, it's passing. It's fleeting. It's only pleasurable for a season. He realized that living for God, even if it was much harder, even if it was worse, it's better than living for the passing pleasures of sin that the world has to offer. You know, something we all need to understand about sin is that it brings pleasure, yeah, but it only lasts for a short time. And that's the lie that Satan gives of, oh, this will satisfy you forever. Just keep indulging in this. It'll be so great. And initially, there's pleasure. There's a reason it's tempting to us because it does bring us some pleasure initially, but it's fleeting. That pleasure turns to pain. That thing that we desired all of a sudden that we wanted brings consequences and destruction. You know, with sin, there's a difference between appearance and the reality. It always appears better than it really is. And that's one of Satan's lies. Oh, look at it. It's so wonderful. Oh, eat it. Oh, take it. Oh, oh, indulge in it. And we think, oh, it's so great. It looks great until you actually go for it. And then you just realize, whoa, it's not as, not what I thought it would be. Not satisfying like I hoped. There's a difference between the momentary feeling and the lasting effect. You know, that first feeling, oh, oh, this is so great, but it's momentary. The lasting effects are the things that you really have to consider because the consequences and the destruction that lasts from sin is the thing that really is going to be with you. And that momentary feeling, is it's not going to be worth it anymore. You're like, oh, well, I got all of this consequence just for that? But yet, we're not thinking that way because, oh, I just want this you know, indulgence and this feeling or whatever, and we don't realize, yeah, it's momentary, but the lasting effects are horrible. You know, there's so many examples of this. Drug use is a big one. You know, the first time you get high, the first time you indulge in drugs, yeah, there, there's that, oh, this is a great feeling, and it's, you know, oh, I like it, but the lasting effects and the consequences and the results are horrible. They destroy lives, ruin lives. And it's the same pattern with all sin. It brings a little pleasure at the beginning, but then it destroys. So Moses, he makes a big decision. You know what? I'm willing to give up the passing pleasures of sin. And in Egypt, he would have had anything he wanted as a prince. I mean, this is a place where it was the hub of sin, and he and his role could have indulged in any of it. And he says, I'll give that up to be connected with the people of God. The second reason Moses chose to give up this privilege that he had being Pharaoh's uh, daughter's son is in verse 26. It says, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. 
So not only did Moses realize, hey, there's passing pleasure to sin, he realized something else. That the treasures of this world are nothing in comparison to the treasures that God will give. So sin that said, oh, this is so great, this is so rewarding, take it. And he says, no, I realize that's passing, that's fleeting, that doesn't give you what you want. Oh, well, then indulge in the treasures of this world. No, the treasures of God are far superior, far better to give myself to. So Moses looked to the reward in heaven, not the rewards that this earth has to offer. You know, Jesus said basically the same thing to us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus' challenge is the same as what Moses came to realize. Hey, don't store up treasures here on this earth. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. And he gives a practical reason. Treasures here on this earth, they can be taken and they will be destroyed. They will not last. Treasures in heaven, they can never be taken and they will last for all eternity. Well, which one's better? Obviously, the ones that can't be taken and that last for all eternity. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you're wise, store up the treasures in heaven and don't focus on storing up the treasures here on this earth. So Moses was willing to choose to give up all this world had to offer him and to make a choice to say, I'm going to follow God and be connected with God's people versus the world. And the reason he was willing to do that is because he saw that what this world has to offer is nothing compared to what God has to offer. And the sin that this world indulges itself in, it just fades away. Its pleasures fade away. It's not worth it. So Moses was trained and taught in all the wisdom of Egypt. He grew and became mighty in words and deeds. And he got to an age where he made a choice. I'm no longer going to be the prince. I'm now going to connect myself with the Hebrews who are suffering affliction from the Egyptians. Which brings us to verse 11. And now we see Moses as a grown man. The book of Acts tells us that he's 40 years old now, so he went from baby to 40. We've seen some great things here in the book of Acts of what Moses did, of what he chose to give up. But unfortunately, the example that we're going to see here is not a good one. Let's see what Moses does. Verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses is now 40 years old. He's looking at his brethren, the Hebrews. He sees how mistreated they are, that they are slaves, that they are abused, that they are taskmasters who are Egyptians that beat them regularly. And as he's looking, it's interesting, this Hebrew word look more than just, I see something. It means to see with emotion. And so he's filled with emotion as he looks at his people being so brutally treated by the Egyptians. And as he's looking, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And now I want you to imagine here how you would feel if you were in a situation where you were watching someone beat someone that you love, beat one of your family members, how would you respond? What would be the emotions going through you? What would you want to do as you watch someone beat 
someone that was important to you. And I could honestly say, I saw someone beating my family, and then I would want, I'd have the desire to beat them um, because they've done that. And notice what Moses does as he sees this Egyptian beating a Hebrew. We're told he looks this way, and he looks that way. He doesn't see anybody around, and he goes and he kills this Egyptian, and then he hides him in the sand. I understand this response, but it doesn't make it right. What Moses does here is sinful. What Moses does here is wrong. And you know what? Moses knew this. And we can see that by his behavior before and after this sin. Before the sin, he knew it was wrong. Well, how do we know? He looked this way. He looked that way. When no one was watching, then he went and did what he did. Well, why is he looking? Why does he want anyone to see? Why? Because he knows it's wrong. And so he's not wanting anyone to know what he's going to do. And so before he kills this Egyptian, he's aware that this is wrong, that this is sinful, that this will bring consequences if he is caught. I think it's interesting what Moses does because you know what? He looked this way. He looked that way. He thinks no one's watching, but the one direction he didn't look was up. Someone was always watching. God was watching. God was aware of what Moses did, but he was just seeing, is there any person seeing this? No one? Okay, good. I'm going to go kill this guy. But the reality was, someone was watching. Someone was aware of what he was doing. But Moses wasn't aware of that or wasn't concerned about that. And you know, this is sadly how we often are with sin. We're Oh, I don't want anyone to know I'm involved in this. I don't want anyone to see. So I'll look, and and if no one's watching, I'll feel like I'm now able to do this. This is very common with pornography. You don't see people watching pornography too often, you know, in a crowd. It's usually, hey, no one's here. I'm all alone. No one's watching. And so I'll indulge in this sin because no one's going to see it. But you know what? We're never alone. And we kind of convince ourselves, hey, I'm all alone, no one knows what big deal, what's only going to hurt me type of mindset. You know, God sees you. Not only does He see us, He indwells us. He's with us in the moments of our choices and our sins. So Moses knew he was wrong in killing this Egyptian before he did it, but he also knew it afterwards. Because after he kills him, notice what he does. He didn't just leave him there. He hides him in the sand. He wants to get rid of the evidence. He doesn't want anyone to know. He wants to hide what he did. And this is another thing that we commonly do when we sin. The Bible says when you sin, the response that God wants is confession and repentance. But too often, we don't confess and we don't repent. We hide. Oh, if I can just hide it and get away with it and nothing will happen to me and I can just keep doing it, I'll just keep hiding it. It's a dangerous place to be. But as Moses is going to discover, and something the Bible tells us, our sin will find us out. We convince ourselves, and Satan convinces us, oh, you can hide this, you won't get caught, no one's going to know, just go ahead and indulge in it. And sadly, you know, I think if we were really honest with ourselves, there are certain things, if I were to say, I can guarantee you will never get caught, I can guarantee no one will ever know, and if that were the parameters... Would you do it? I'm sure there will be things that we would choose to do 
that knowing people would know about it and knowing that we would get caught and knowing that we would suffer the consequences we would say no to, but if we actually were convinced we could get away with it, we could hide it, and then no one would know. Sadly, there are things that we probably, if we're honest, say, yeah, I, I might do that. And the enemy wants to convince us, no one's going to find out. Well, the reality is God already knows, and so often people do. Well, notice what happens in verse 13 and 14. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. So Moses, he kills an Egyptian. Why? Because he wants to protect the Hebrews. He loves the Hebrews. Dare this guy kill Hebrews. The next day, he sees two Hebrew guys fighting. And he comes up to them, hey, why are you guys fighting? You know, I mean, you're brethren. If you're going to fight anybody, fight the Egyptians. But don't fight each other. What are you doing? And he's probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, Moses. But their response to him is not what he thought it would be. They said, who made you judge? Who made you prince over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? You know, this wasn't the response Moses was expecting. Actually, the book of Acts tells us what Moses was expecting when he confronted these two Hebrews. Acts 7, 24 and 25 says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. This was Moses' thought. Hey, I killed this guy for you. I mean, surely you guys know now I'm going to be your deliverer. I mean, God has given me this role, and I killed this Egyptian, and, and now it's obvious, right? I, I've done this, and why aren't you guys like, hey, Moses, our deliverer, hey, great, way to kill that Egyptian. Now we only got a few million more. Let's go for it. I mean, he was thinking, this is going to be the mindset, but instead, who made you prince and judge over us? No one appointed you our leader, Moses. No one appointed you our judge. Who are you to tell me I can't fight with my brother? And then they said something that caused Moses to fear. Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? You see, Moses looked this way. He looked that way. He didn't see anybody. He kills the Egyptian. He hides him in the sand. He thinks nobody knows. But people saw. And now all of a sudden he realizes and he says, Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. He has good reason to fear. You kill an Egyptian, at that time that was a capital punishment. Your life would be taken from you. People know about it. He's wondering, how far has this spread? Who knows of this besides these Hebrew men here? And word of a prince killing Egyptians? It spread quick. It got all the way to Pharaoh. Let's see how Pharaoh responds in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Pharaoh hears what Moses did. I mean, he's prince, but he doesn't care because you don't kill another Egyptian, and so he now wants to kill Moses for doing this. Moses finds out that Pharaoh knows and Pharaoh wants to kill you, and so Moses runs from Egypt, and we're told he goes to the land of Midian. 
So it's interesting, Moses felt like he was supposed to be God's deliverer of Israel. And the interesting thing is, it's true. He is God's deliverer of Israel. God did have that in store for him. That was God's plan for him. But here's the problem. He tried to deliver them in his own fleshly wisdom and his own fleshly power instead of relying upon God's. So he had an understanding. Hey, I'm the guy. I'm going to do this. God's going to use me to deliver you. But instead of doing it in God's way, he did it in his own way. I'll just kill this guy. And then everyone's going to know that I'm the man to do this. And his fleshly wisdom and power did not produce the kind of results he was thinking they were. You know, Moses here struggled with something that we often struggle with as well. Trying to do the work of God in our own fleshly wisdom and our own fleshly power and thinking that that is actually going to work. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is such a great verse to memorize and to think about and to be reminded of. Not by my might, not by my power are things going to happen spiritually. It's only going to be by the Lord's power, by His Spirit, that things are going to transpire. And so if I'm trying to do the work of God in my own flesh, my own wisdom, my own way, it's never going to work. I've tried it, I'm sure you've tried it, and you realize it doesn't work unless we depend on and rely upon the strength, the power, the wisdom, the knowledge of the Lord. It just doesn't come together like it should. You know, from the world's perspective, Moses would have been the perfect person to deliver Egypt at this time. I mean, he's the prince. He's got 40 years of great education from Egyptian wisdom. He's got power. He's got influence. He's mighty in words and deeds. He spent 40 years getting all the right credentials that the Egyptians would have respected, but he didn't have the most important credentials. The credentials that come from God. The credentials that come from Growth and God working in him, he had a lot to learn about humility, a lot to learn about servanthood, about shepherding, about reliance on the Lord. You know, something important for us to understand is the education of the world is not what prepares us to do the ministry of God. And I get kind of saddened by this because I see a lot of people wanting to go into ministry and they think, well, if I'm educated by the world, then I'm going to be successful. And you think, that's so backwards. The world's never going to prepare you for ministry. That's something that only God is able to do. I think we see a great example of this with the disciples in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Notice here the, the thoughts. The thoughts of the educated, the thoughts of the world, the thoughts of the religious leaders. They see what Peter and John have done. This is just after this man is healed and all these people are just flocking to them and they're realizing, hey, these guys are uneducated, untrained fishermen. I mean, what could they ever accomplish? What could they ever do for God? They don't have the education that the world gives. They don't have the the training that the world gives. And they marvel. They're marveling. Why? Because they think only people who have that education and training can ever do something for the Lord. But they notice something else, and I think this is the key. They realize they've been with Jesus. You see, that was their education. They spent three years with Jesus every day. They grew. They learned. They were prepared by the Lord Himself to go out and do ministry for Him. 
You see, it's not the education of the world that prepares us for ministry. It's the education that we get through spending that quality, regular time with Jesus. That's what prepares you. That's what helps you. That's what enables you. Not what this world offers. So Moses has spent 40 years being educated by the world. He thinks he's ready to do it on his own. He comes up with a great plan in his mind. Hey, I'm just going to kill this guy. It's all going to work out. Well, it doesn't work out. Instead of leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he's running from Egypt to Midian for his life because what he did in his own flesh and power didn't work. It wasn't God's plan. But you know what? I'm so happy the story doesn't end there. That Moses doesn't just run off to Midian. We don't hear from him anymore. God doesn't use him. He had his opportunity. He blew it and that's it. The story doesn't end there. Wonderfully, the Lord's not done. Actually, God's just getting started. Moses spends 40 years getting educated by Egypt, wisdom, by the world, and God's going to now take 40 years to really train him in the things of the Lord. And that's going to be the next section that we're going to look at. We're going to see the 40 years of training in Midian and what God does to actually prepare Moses to be the deliverer that God had called him to be, but that he wasn't ready to be at 40 because he only had the training of the world, that at 80, he's going to be ready because he's going to have the training that God gives. So in this section, we see three wonderful things about God, that he's our protector, that he's our provider, and also that he is a blesser of those who trust him. And we see two great examples from Moses and his parents. Moses' parents are a great example of trusting God, which is most valuable and important to you. Moses was a great example of being willing to give up the pleasures of the world and sin and choosing to follow God instead. But he's also like us. Even in our times of making good choices, he also chooses to make a bad choice. Even maybe if he thought, well, it's for good reason. They're beating this person who doesn't deserve it. I'm going to take care of them. Well, he chooses to sin. He chooses to look both ways, thinks no one's watching, kills this guy, tries to cover it up, and it brings lots of problems to his life, which is a warning for us. So any thoughts on what we looked at tonight in the first 40 years here of Moses' life?